So if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Genesis chapter 8. We read the sermon text earlier this morning in the service. We're going to be considering Genesis 8:20 through the end of chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't be worried about that. The words to the sermon text will be on the screen behind me, and you can follow along with us that way. Since we've already read the passage, I'm not going to do that again. We'll be referring to it throughout the sermon. My plan for our time together is to give us five points and then a closing reflection. The first four points will be about the covenant that God made with Noah, what it entails and its implications. And then the last point, along with the closing reflection, will be about Noah and his sons. So let's begin with point number one. Point one, the covenant with Noah. The covenant with Noah. Not a creative heading, but we're just going to do a kind of drive-by and make some observations about this covenant that God made with Noah. We're going to be looking at chapter 8 and verse 20 through verse 17 of chapter 9. We see in verse 20 of chapter 8 that Noah and everybody else are now off the ark, and Noah builds an altar and offers sacrifices to the Lord. The Lord is pleased with the aroma of the sacrifices. And then the Lord begins to say things in his heart. Let's look at verses 21 and 22 as to what the Lord vows. He says that he will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God understands man's frame. Man has not changed. Man will not change. But God has vowed to never curse the ground again because of him. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Great is thy faithfulness, we just sung. Summer and winter, springtime and harvest. The Lord has promised to sustain the earth and its regular rhythms, to never act in complete judgment again the way that he had in the flood. All of these things, these regular rhythms and patterns, the earth itself will endure until the end when everything is remade. These things, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night, they remain because God determined that they would. We use a lot of different kinds of turns of phrase as human beings. One of the things that we often will say to each other Maybe when we're not having the best day is what? Well, the sun will come out tomorrow. You bet it will, because God has said it will. It's been coming up every day for thousands of years. And this text is why. There's a regular and predictable pattern to life under the sun, because God has made it so. In verses 1 through 7 of chapter 9, as we move our way forward, we're going to see the commission of the Noahic covenant, and then the stipulations of the covenant. Noahic covenant just being the covenant God made with Noah. In verse 1 of chapter 9, you see that God blesses Noah and his sons, and he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now that sounds very familiar. That sounds like what God had said to Adam chapters ago. We get that same refrain repeated again in verse 7 of chapter 9. And you, God says, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. This account of Noah after the flood is clearly presented to us as a new kind of creation story, kind of a recreation 
after the flood. But this covenant that God has made with Noah is not a full resetting of the system. It's important that we see that. This is kind of a restart, but everything is not remade as it was before. It is not a return to Eden. It is not a return to paradise, nor is it the gift of a new one. Man is still the same. You can see that in verse 21 of chapter 8 that we just considered. Man is still fallen. There is no return to innocence or original righteousness. The earth is still cursed. Things are different than they were in Eden, even though this is a starting over of sorts. Notice, as we continue to think about how things will be now, look at verse 2 of chapter 9. Whereas Adam would rule in the original design over animals and the creation in peace, now the relationship between man and the rest of the creation is characterized by something else. It's characterized by fear and by dread. In verses 3 and 4, we see that human beings will now eat animals though they are to have regard clearly for animal life. In verses 5 and 6, it's very clear by implication that man is going to continue to kill other men. There will still be striving against each other because God says there's going to be a reckoning for the life of a human being. If an animal kills a human being, there will be a reckoning. And God's law even speaks to some of these things, like in Exodus 21. If your ox kills somebody, this is how we handle it. But there will be a reckoning if a human being kills another human being. The murderer's life is required, says God, in retributive justice. Then in verses 8 to 11, we have the formal establishment of the covenant. Let's just look at these verses together. God says to Noah and to his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that's with you. The birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. So these things that God has vowed to himself, he is now speaking to Noah in the form of a covenant. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Then in verses 12 to 17, God, as he always does, gives a sign of the covenant. He gives, as many will know, from books that you've read to your kids or your time in Sunday school, God sets his bow in the clouds as a sign of this covenant. He says, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you and for all future generations. That's verse 12. Verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy everything. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature that is on the earth. Just like every other sign of a covenant that God gives. So think about, for example, baptism and the new covenant. This is always true. Signs of covenants have everything to do with God and His faithfulness to us. This sign of this covenant is no different. The rainbow is God's pledge to us 
that he will do what he has said. He will see it, he says, and I will remember. And as we were even thinking about a couple of weeks ago, when God says, I will remember something, it's not just that he recalls something to his mind that he maybe forgot. It's that, no, he will act according to the promises that he's made. One last observation before we move forward. This is concerning the nature of the Noahic covenant. It is very clearly a covenant that is unconditional. It is a covenant that is gracious on the part of God. Why do we say that? Remember, man is still the same. Man's heart is still wicked. So clearly, this covenant is not conditioned upon anything in man. This is something that God unconditionally in grace promises to do. Yes, there are obligations. There are stipulations. We've considered some of those things. Be fruitful. Be multiplied. Be multiplying and team on the earth. We're going to be thinking later about principles of retributive justice and the social order and things like this. Those things exist. But the blessings of the Noahic covenant that God will sustain the creation, those blessings don't go away based upon how man acts or does not act. So in short, brothers and sisters, we should see the covenant that God made with Noah as a promise of preservation. God will preserve the created order, which brings us to point two. Point two is the most significant thing about the Noahic covenant. That's the heading. The most significant thing about the Noahic covenant. I don't like in preaching, I don't really like to do the whole bait and switch, bury the lead thing, so I'm just going to kind of lay my cards on the table. The Noahic covenant was given by God and instituted by God to stabilize the created order so that he could accomplish his plan of redemption. That's the reason, above all reasons, that he did this. In other words, the covenant God made with Noah stabilizes the creation so that Jesus could come. The promised seed of Eve who would crush the serpent's head and undo the curse, is the ultimate point of this. The covenant with Noah exists so that the covenant of grace can be accomplished. So that the mystery of Christ, hidden for ages in God, could unfold on this stage that the world, or excuse me, that the Lord has preserved. Consider Jesus. He is... God the Son made flesh, the promised seed of the woman who would come to undo the effects of the curse and to save all of God's people. He was born of woman in the creation. He was born in time 2,000 years ago. He was born in space outside of Bethlehem. And he was born under the law. You realize none of that happens if the created order is not sustained. And thank God he sustained it. And thank God that Jesus was born under the law. Because you you realize this, right? That the only person who can look at God's law and have peace, and I'm talking about a fallen human, the only fallen human being who can look at God's law and have peace is a person who, frankly, does not understand it. 
Because anybody who looks at the law and gets it at all is screaming at the top of his lungs, how can I have peace? We can recite the great commandment and the second that's like it, can we not? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But nobody has ever kept it, not for five minutes. We tend to look around. I mean, we do this even in the church sometimes. We tend to look around and think, well, maybe I haven't loved God with my whole heart, but I'm doing all right. Whereas we should think, if this, love God above all things, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is the greatest commandment, and on it hang all the law and the prophets, then to break it must be a damnable thing before God. But Christ came, born of woman, born under the law, in time and space, to redeem those who are under the law. He came to fulfill all of its requirements and to fulfill all of its punishment. He did it for us, and he did it in our place. And so the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's only true because Christ came. And he came in part because God planned for him to come in this world that he would sustain. When Paul says in Romans 1.17 that the righteousness of God is revealed from faithful faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, he does not mean God's inherent righteousness is revealed in the gospel. He means the righteousness of God that he gives to sinners is revealed in the gospel. Received by faith, all on the basis of Jesus Christ. So friends, as you look at this promise and this covenant that God made with Noah, see it as yet another testimony to his great and utter unshakable faithfulness to you. Every child of God from all time has known and can know that God will not destroy the earth until every last promise that he's made is fulfilled. So, however insane life on this earth becomes. It's been pretty bananas lately, right? However unstable things are around us, we know God will keep His promises. That, in so many ways, friends, is the message of this book and the utility of this book. When we suffer... When life is crazy, it's not a handbook for like mental health. It is a book about the faithfulness of God, which is what we encourage each other with when everything is falling apart. God will keep His promises to us, and among those promises are forgiveness of sins, absolution of guilt, declaration of righteousness, he will conform us into the image of His Son. 
He will raise us imperishable, completely and finally delivered from sin, delivered from suffering and pain and tears and death. You see, the covenant that God makes with Noah and the covenant of grace that contains all of those things that we've just been thinking about, they're related. Listen to how the Lord talks about his covenant of grace, his covenant of peace that's eternal. Listen to what he says through the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah 54, 9 and 10 for those taking notes in the room. How he connects Noah and what he did with Noah to his faithfulness to keep his covenant of peace. The Lord says, this is like the days of Noah to me. He's talking to Israel a long time later. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. The great purpose of the Noahic covenant is the coming of Jesus our Redeemer. However, there is more to say, which brings us to point three. Point number three I have entitled the Noahic Covenant and the Common Kingdom. The Noahic Covenant and the Common Kingdom. Now just truth in advertising, this is one of those times, we had this a few weeks ago. This point is going to have a lot of teaching in it, so just track with me, and it's also going to have a lot of pastoral considerations in it. So let's Track, let's pray. God, give us grace that we might track together. The covenant God makes with Noah establishes what is called through history the common kingdom, the common kingdom of the world. There is another kingdom called the redemptive kingdom. And that one is established by the promise and the accomplishment of the covenant of grace. The covenant God made with Noah Its concerns are ordinary cultural activities, marriage, procreation, food, judicial action of proportionate justice, things like that. Whereas concerns of other covenants are sacred activities of faith and worship. The Noahic covenant extends to the entire human race in common. It actually, as you have seen, it extends to animals and to the whole earth. There is no distinction in the Noahic covenant between a holy people and an unholy people. Whereas other covenants make those distinctions, the people of God and not the people of God. The Noahic covenant ensures the preservation of the natural order and of the social order. Whereas other covenants ensure the realization of something greater than life on earth. And lastly, the Noahic covenant is put into place temporarily. Now granted, it will last a long time, but it will end eventually. Whereas the covenant of grace, God's covenant of peace, lasts forever. It's eternal. Obligations of all man under this covenant that God made with Noah. I would put it under three big headings. This matters a lot for us. Life in the world, under the sun. Obligation one, that's very clear from the text to protect life and to protect the social order through the enforcement of justice. Second obligation, to preserve and promote procreation. Implication through marriage and the family because that's what God ordained. 
Third, to promote the building of culture and of successful society. That's the obligation of every human being. People of God, not people of God, doesn't matter under the covenant God made with Noah. Protect life and the social order through the enforcement of justice. Preserve and promote procreation through marriage and the family. Promote the building of culture and successful societies. These things apply to all people, every individual, every government. The common kingdom understanding of the Noahic covenant is why all people, not just Christians, not just religious types, should be concerned with justice and should be concerned with the social order in the family. And history has shown, by and large, that people have been concerned with those things. The Noahic covenant, along with passages like Romans 13, is the basis for why Christians have seen that governments ordained by God are entrusted with the power of the sword to punish wickedness and promote life and flourishing. See, these things matter, right? As you have these categories in your mind and you think about life on earth. Now, as significant as the Noahic covenant is, we don't want to turn it into something it's not. And to help us not do that, I want to briefly consider how the covenant God made with Noah is different than the covenant he made with Adam. Just track with me briefly. When it comes to Adam, Adam could earn eternal life. Adam was also commissioned to extend Eden to the entire world. In that sense, to make the world a temple of God's presence and God's blessing. And the covenant God made with Adam, it offered eternal life, salvation. The covenant God made with Noah, though, Noah could not earn eternal life. That ship had sailed. Noah could not extend Eden, paradise, all over the world. That ship, too, had sailed. And Noah could not reverse the effects of the curse and redeem the creation. Now, there was one who would come and do that, but his name is not Noah. So for us, as we take our cue from Scripture, we are citizens of both this common kingdom and of the redemptive one. So think this passage, think Ecclesiastes. We all live life under the sun. That's common kingdom language. But then think Paul, Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior. That's redemptive kingdom stuff. We're citizens of both as Christians. So it's really important as we think about life on earth and what the point of it is for us. A Christian's cultural activities, and by that I mean cultural activities in this life, need to be carefully distinguished from the coming of Christ's kingdom. The cultural activities of a Christian have to also be distinguished from the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. So what does that mean for us? How does it apply? Again, I'm trying to help us keep things straight in our minds, and I'm hoping that we're liberated in some way by these thoughts together. How does this apply to our church, corporate reality? Well, the church is about the work of the redemptive kingdom, period. The mission of the church, rightly defined, is this. The right preaching of God's word and the right administration of the sacraments for the salvation of God's people. That is the mission of the church. 
The right preaching of God's word, the right administration of the sacraments for the salvation of God's people is what the church was instituted and commissioned to do. So here in the church, we do not aim to equip people so that they can fulfill Adam's original task. We aim to preach Christ who fulfilled Adam's original task once and for all on our behalf. We do not want to get the mission of the church confused. There are many that I fear do confuse it. The church does not exist to transform the culture. Now, practical thoughts on this. There is a distinction between the church as an institution and the church as it is composed of individual members. You understand that distinction. There's an institution and there's a bunch of individual people that comprise it. Members of the church may be involved and should be involved in any number of good things. But the mission of the church as an institution is actually much more pointed in its emphasis. So this doesn't mean that a church can't have ministries in a community. Of course they can. We can. But it does mean that those will vary. It means that those will vary based on context or based on the church's resources and gifts or based even upon the passions and burdens of its members. But then how does this apply to us as individuals? This covenant with Noah and it being distinct from the redemptive kingdom. Well, it means that we are not called to be little atoms running around trying to redeem the creation in order to usher in the kingdom of God. Sometimes you hear people talk like this. Like we need to be doing things and transforming things and redeeming things so that the kingdom of God can be ushered in. This is my assessment as I have studied the scriptures and I'm going to lay it out for you unashamedly. You, brothers and sisters, are not called to do the work that Adam failed to do. You're not called to do the work that Adam failed to do. After the fall, there is only one person who could do that. There's only one person who has done it and is doing it, and his name is Jesus. We're citizens of the redemptive kingdom and the common kingdom. It's pretty epic stuff. And so regarding the redemptive kingdom, you might be asking, brother, What does it mean then for me that I'm a citizen of the redemptive kingdom? Well, it means a number of things, but just a few of them. It means for us that we do this. We do this. We live life in local churches because they are outposts of the redemptive kingdom. We remind one another of what the Lord has done for us and how we have been given a kingdom that can never be shaken, which is clearly not the kingdom of this world. We tell others of Christ and give reasons for the hope that we have and we invite others to come and taste and see that the Lord is good and that Jesus saves sinners. We love one another as we await the return of Christ. We remind one another that the common kingdom is not all that there is and that there is a hope beyond this life. A hope to which we have been called. We remind each other that it's not just Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. As much as it may feel like that, we remind each other that that's not true. No, because Christ is coming back. Heaven will come down. 
We will be raised imperishable. We'll see the Lord and we'll be with him and with each other. As David Van Drunen has written, quote, this church, God's redemptive kingdom in the present age, has a distinct membership, faith, worship, and ethic. Its way of life displays a counterculture to the cultures of this world. The church awaits the coming of Christ as a day of glorious consummation when the bride will see her bridegroom face to face as she is ushered into the wedding banquet of the Lamb. Praise God. But then as far as your citizenship, my citizenship in the common kingdom, what can we say about that? A few things. Marching order number one in the common kingdom, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. We deal uprightly with other people. We deal equitably with other people. We are honest and we're faithful in our vocation. We uphold the dignity of every human being. And inasmuch as it depends on us, we pursue justice for all people. That's common kingdom stuff. And it's good and valuable. Now what that looks like can vary depending on where you find yourself, depending on your gifts or your talents or what kind of job you have or what kind of sphere of influence you have. In short, when it comes to life in the common kingdom, brothers and sisters, we do ordinary things ordinarily. doesn't sound exciting. It doesn't necessarily sell. But it's sustainable. And we need not worry ourselves with transforming the world or with figuring out a distinctly Christian way to be a programmer or a baker or an engineer. We work well and faithfully. We love our neighbor. And then when it comes to the redemptive stuff, that's what this is for. And we invite others in to what we do here. Point number four is very brief. I just want to make a, a brief comment or two about common grace because I would feel negligent if I didn't do that. Number four, I'll go and give you a heading. There is common grace in the common kingdom. Point four, there is common grace in the common kingdom. So the covenant that God made with Noah has a lot to do with what is often called common grace. And by common grace, we mean God's grace to all mankind in common, not God's special grace to his people to save them. The promises and blessings of the covenant with Noah apply to every citizen of the common kingdom on earth, to believers and unbelievers alike. God causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the wicked. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Seed time and harvest occur for all people. Though God does act in measured judgment from time to time, the entire human race does not suffer from it at once like they did in the flood. And while the common grace of the common kingdom does not offer salvation, it is pure kindness of God to pour out sun and rain and food and drink and music and art and all of those things commonly on mankind rather than only pouring out judgment and curses and wrath. God is preserving the world for the purposes of redemption, but in the meantime, every human being, this is important, is entitled to common kindness and common justice. 
This is just as true for the unbeliever as it is for the believer. The Noahic covenant has a lot to say about common grace. Point number five. We're now going to transition to Noah and his sons. Noah and his sons. Continue to track with me. So we see here in verses 18 to 29 of chapter 9 some information about the sons of Noah and about what's happening with Noah and his sons in the aftermath of the flood. We're going to see in verses 20 and 21 that Noah is just like the rest of humanity in that he's a sinner. Put your eyes on verse 20 of chapter 9. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now the point in this section is not so much on Noah and his sin, it's really on his sons and what they do. We are told of Noah's sons that the nations of the earth descended from the three of them. And next week, Moses is going to catalog that in more detail in chapter 10. But one of the sons, the youngest son named Ham, we read of him in verse 22 and how he acted toward his father when Noah laid passed out drunk. Verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and then told his two brothers outside. So Noah is passed out, he's naked, and what is depicted could simply be akin to like voyeurism or something like that, or perhaps some other kind of deviancy, we're not told, but either way, Ham's actions are reprehensible on a number of levels. We're going to come back to that and why it's significant what he did. We read about Shem and Japheth, the other two sons of Noah, in verse 23, and how they reacted to the sin of their father. Then Shem, you can put your eyes there, verse 23, then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. They respect their father. And they seek to cover his nakedness and shame. And we'll come back to that too in just a moment. In verses 24 to 27, there's some pretty cool redemptive stuff going on here. Redemptive historical stuff. Noah, when he wakes up and knows what's happened, pronounces a curse on Ham. Or more precisely, he curses Ham's son named Canaan. And then he blesses Shem and Japheth. Remember that that Moses has been showing us that there are two lines of human beings that have come out of the garden. There's the line of the woman and the line of the serpent. We saw it through Cain and Abel. We saw it through chapter 5. Here, we should see those two lines again. Ham is clearly the line of the serpent, and Shem clearly the line of the promise. Abraham would descend from Shem, so would Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David and Jesus. But regarding Japheth, put your eyes on verse 27. Noah says, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. We're going to read in chapter 10 that Japheth's descendants would populate lands known as the coastlands. Friends, we... Understand this as you read your Bible. We, any of us who are not physical descendants of Abraham in this room, which I trust is most everyone, we are of this number, of this line of people who inhabited the coastlands. 
This would have been Greece, this would have been Europe, this would have been the Americas, even as people have understood it historically. Consider the words of God through the prophet Isaiah about Japheth and how the peoples of the coastlands would be grafted in. This is Isaiah 42. Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Or these words from Isaiah 51. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me and for my arm they wait. May the sons of, she- of Japheth let them dwell in the tents of Shem. And G- indeed they would. The sons of Japheth would dwell with the people of God. Gentiles would become sons of Abraham through faith in Christ. Those who were far off would be brought near through the blood of Jesus. Which brings us now to our closing reflection. We're going to consider the actions of Noah's sons for just a moment. The actions of Ham and then the actions of Shem and Japheth. So regarding the actions of Ham toward Noah, not only does he sin against his father by looking upon his father's nakedness, he then goes and publicizes it. He tells his brothers about what's going on. A significant piece of Ham's sin is actually the fact that he draws attention to the sin of his father rather than covering it like his brothers do. Ham acts out of self-righteousness and self-love, not love for his dad. Shem and Japheth, on the other hand, do not dishonor their father. They take great pains not to dishonor him. They walk in backwards. They're carrying something that they would cover him with. They don't look upon him and cover his nakedness and his shame. Friends, just by way of reflection on our own lives, that posture of the two older sons is the way that we should seek to live with each other. It's the way that we should seek to do for each other. We should seek to cover the shame of our brothers and our sisters rather than defame them and make it public when it need not be. Consider the words of Martin Luther on this passage. He says, when we see saints fall, let us not be offended, much less let us gloat over the weaknesses of other people or rejoice as though we were stronger, wiser, and holier. Rather, let us bear with and cover and even extenuate and excuse such mistakes as much as we can, bearing in mind that what the other person has experienced today, we may perhaps experience tomorrow. We are all one mass. We are all born of one flesh. Therefore, let us learn from St. Paul's rule that he who stands should take heed lest he fall. Amen. 
this kind of consideration, covering the shame of others, this kind of gentleness to not publicize the sin of others should characterize us as God's people. This is so different, obviously, than the world, is it not? Gossip magazines are a thing for a reason. I mean, if magazines are even still a thing, but you know what I mean? Websites that contain such content are popular for a reason because there is something about scandal and the sin of other people that we find irresistible. It ought not be that way in the church. Galatians 6.1, in a spirit of gentleness, those of you who are spiritual, those of you who are mature, should seek to restore those who are caught in sin with gentleness, keeping watch on yourself lest you too fall. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, we are to be people who seek to keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, as significant as any of that may be about covering the shame of our brothers and sisters and living with that kind of gentleness and consideration. As important as that is, it is not the most important thing for us to see from these verses about Noah and his sons. The question that we should all ask ourselves is how has God acted ultimately with respect to our sin? How has God acted ultimately with respect to us and our drunkenness and our nakedness or even our lack of love for other people. What has God done? Answer, in our Lord Jesus Christ, God has covered our guilt and our shame. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Psalm 32.1. Human beings, brothers and sisters, are haunted by guilt. We're haunted by shame, are we not? R.C. Sproul, who was a pastor and theologian, died a few years ago, used to tell an anecdote about a friend of his who was a psychiatrist who had a very thriving practice. And this psychiatrist friend of R.C. Sproul one time offered R.C. a job as a shrink. And R.C. objected to his friend. I mean, it's big salary, good position. R.C. objected to his friend, I'm not qualified to do that. I don't have training. I'm not a psychiatrist. To which his friend asked, but you're a theologian, right? R.C. says, well, yeah, I am. And the psychiatrist said to him, 90% of the people I see are where they are because they are plagued by guilt. They don't need a psychiatrist. They need a priest. They need forgiveness. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Guilt kills us. It bleeds us out. But then these words, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Saints, we have committed a million sins. 
but Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. And then think about how he died. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was humiliated. He was hung naked on a cross to atone for our sins. So when you read, when I read this account of Noah, consider this, that Noah laid naked in his tent, passed out from wine. But Jesus would hang naked on the tree and bleed for our sins. And there was Noah's salvation on that tree. And there was yours too. And mine. Jesus bore our shame. He was clothed with our sins. All so that we might be forgiven. And so that we might be clothed in His righteousness. And all the people of God said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray for ourselves that we would trust Your Son. We pray that You would remind us anew even this morning of the fact that our guilt and shame is actually greater than we could ever imagine, but that the work of Christ on our behalf is greater than we could ever conceive. Give us faith to trust Christ and to believe all of your promises. You have demonstrated over and over again that you're faithful. We pray that we would trust you. Help us now, even as we come to your table, to come in faith, casting ourselves upon your mercy that you have poured out upon us in your Son. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.